It's the little section that everybody forgets about uh, before they get to the Lord's Prayer. Next week, Pastor Ben's going to come in. He's going to talk to you about the who of prayer. Then the following week, we're going to talk about the how of prayer. And the final week, which I think will be a huge blessing if you come, it's really about the why, right? It really is that last, if that last sermon will bless you abundantly, I'm telling you right now. So we're going to do things a little bit differently because when you talk about the prayer, it's something that you should be doing yourselves, right? I love the ship's captain who, where the ship was sinking in the middle of the storm, and he called out to his crew and he said, uh, does anyone here know how to pray? And one of the sailors stood up and said, I know how to pray. And he said, wonderful. You start praying while the rest of us put on our life jackets because we only were missing one. And so <laughs> prayer can be powerful. I like the prayer of the young man who said, so far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot of help. <laughs> I think it's true for all of us, right? There's some things when you look at a sermon, and, you know, S.M. Lockridge, I, I love what he said. He said, there's four things you should do to evaluate a good sermon. The first one is, it should stretch your mind, right? It should instruct and inform and just really kind of educate in some ways. The second one, he said, is that it should tan your hide, and that is really about correcting and admonishing you, right? The, the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, it says, the third thing is it should warm your heart. It should inspire you and encourage you. And the last is it should provoke your will. And that's really to challenge you to do what the Lord would have you to do, right? And that's the essence of a good sermon. I don't know if I have any of that in my sermon today, but I think I'm going to talk about prayer in a way that hopefully will be a little bit transformative for you. There's a principle in biblical interpretation called the principle of repeated mention. It means that repeated things in Scripture are often the things that he's placing the most emphasis on. And in this passage, verse 5 begins with, and when you pray, verse 6 says, but when you pray, and verse 7 says, but when you pray. But first, the text assumes that righteous people pray. There are many passages that command us to pray. This is not one of them. This passage assumes that true disciples pray. Martin Luther said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Show me a Christian that doesn't pray and I'll show you someone who is spiritually dead. The second assumption of the text is embedded in Jesus' instructions is not only that righteous people pray, but it's of a continual nature, right? When you look at the verb pray, it speaks to a continual practice And Jesus still deems it necessary to teach us how to pray. It's amazing. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. In Romans 8, 26, it says, For we do not know how to pray as we ought to. But I think sometimes I wonder when we start to struggle with the issue of prayer, are we not leaning on Matthew 20 where Jesus says to the disciples that you don't know what you ask? Prayer is tough, right? You ever get alone and start to think about what you want to talk to God about, then your mind gets flooded with all kinds of thoughts that distract you. Isn't that amazing? To me, I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, we're not told that Jesus ever taught his disciples how to preach, but he taught them how to pray. He wanted them to have power with God because he knew if they had power with God that they would have power with men. 
The lessons on prayer here in this is the Sermon on the Mount, which is we've been going through. We started off with the kingdom makers, and then we went to city on a hill. These chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, is somewhat the constitution of the kingdom of heaven, when you really look at it. And uh, as, the, as the crowds grew with messianic expectation, they gathered in this little valley to hear Jesus speak to them, and he taught them what means to be the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is basically what the whole passage is about from chapters 5 to 7. And the requirement of citizenship is as simple as it is impossible. True righteousness. And it was important for the crowd to hear this message there because many of them erroneously thought they were already in the kingdom of heaven because they were Jews. And they confused religion with righteousness. They confused religion with relationship, as we talked about last week. And it's interesting because Jesus sort of makes this announcement in our passage today, and he says there's such people that are phonies in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they have phony passports. They think they're going to heaven, but they're far from it. And no more important does it come out when we really look at how we pray. A.W. Tozer said something. He says, man, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on, but how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we've been trying to substitute praying for obeying. And it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precepts laid down by Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become ineffective when we stop using well, prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. And we've talked on throughout the series that we're all broken people. That's true. But broken people were we're, we're redeemed by God. If we're children of God, we're redeemed by God in such a way where God is going to lead us from where he found us in our broken state and through a process that the Bible calls sanctification, grow us and teach us to be more like Jesus. Not to leave us in that broken place, but to make us better for our good and the good of the world to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 6 teaches righteous people how to do religious stuff in a lot of ways. And so when we look at this, this is the less famous part of the passage because we're going to get to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is really a model for prayer, and so it teaches us a lot of things. And in the passage, we learn that there's this power behind that prayer. But more importantly, I think that what Jesus has to say about how not to pray is it's just important is what he eventually says about how to pray. The fact that Jesus gives these negative instructions first probably deemed that they were more important than the actual prayer that he gives out and we'll talk about next week. These negative instructions gives us this more important understanding as we get into the place we're going to pray because the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, talks about the power of prayer, but this preamble talks about the problem and the power of sin. Sin, it'll cause you to to cheat on your spouse. Sin will cause you to neglect your children. Children, sin will cause you to disrespect your parents. Sin will cause you to steal from your employer. Sin will cause you to betray the trust of your friends. 
Sin hurts relationships. And what Jesus is talking about here is when we go to God under these false pretenses, that is sin, and it hurts your relationship with God. The most important relationship that we have. So what ends up happening is we bring sin into religious life. It is a some way of complicating and, and corrupting things, even with worship. So when we go to worship with sin, so then rather than glorifying God in worship, you start, you start glorifying yourself by using God to do that. It's real easy for people up here singing and playing to bring all glory to them because they got a great voice or they're a great player of instruments. But when we come to worship, it should be all about God and not about us, right? So there's some warnings that we get in here. And he teaches us how not to pray first. And he starts off with one statement. Do not pray like the hypocrites. Verse 5 says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite is the transliteration of the Greek term that revert to actors or performers in plays who would put masks over their face so they can play different characters throughout the play. And so they were one person trying to be something or some people that they weren't for the benefit of those who were in the theater. So they pretended to be someone else. Jesus used this term to describe religious phonies who pretend to be something they are not to impress other people. Jesus is the only one who uses this term this way throughout all the scriptures. But the Lord never uses it to describe the most wicked of sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He only uses for those who pretend to be religious but have no substance to their religion. Those who pretend to be something in front of others that they knew they were not in front of God. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must mean like the hypocrites. Notice the definite article, the hypocrites, is a specific group, and he's referring to the scribes and Pharisees, and he had called them out earlier in the previous chapter in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless the righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, which must have been a real difficult thing for the Jews to accept because they were the religious elites. They were the holier, the holiest people out there, and if you're saying that if we're not holier than them, we're not going to get into the kingdom of God that had to blow their mind. What do you mean? What are you getting at? And Jesus, by his teaching that true righteousness is examined for its quality, not measured by its quantity, is basically saying that righteousness is not about how many righteous acts you do. It's about whether your righteous acts come from the heart that is in a right standing with God. It's about a heart beholden under Christ that allows it to do the things that Christ calls it to do. So in teaching how righteous people pray, Jesus says, don't like, be like the hypocrites. And do you know if your prayer is hypocritical or sincere, how do you know? By the reward. And that's what he says in the passage. Verse 5, he says, hypocritical prayer is rewarded by man. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's important to be very clear what Jesus does and doesn't condemn. First, there's nothing wrong with what the hypocrites did in and of themselves. They prayed. In fact, there's something said about the hypocrites in here that might not be said about many of you here today. It actually says they loved to pray. I'd ask you today, how many of you actually love to pray? Second, there's, this, there's nothing wrong with how they prayed. They prayed standing. In fact, when you look at in, in the Eastern tradition, most people stood when they prayed. 
unlike us where we say we have to kneel or, you know, sit. They stood. And it's not condemning where they prayed. They prayed in the synagogue, the place where prayer should take place. But then it also said they, where he gets into condemnation is, is that the issue was not a, an act of man or a place or prayer. It was the motivation about where they did it. The problem was that the, these men, they saw them, and the problem was that they prayed in the streets so they could be seen by men. Jesus says, do not pray like the hypocrites because hypocritical prayer is the only rewarded by man. Verse 5 says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. And when you say that, basically it just, it exonerates the Heavenly Father from any responsibility to respond to a hypocritical prayer. No responsibility there. By the time they say amen, they had received the reward of their efforts in prayer. Sincere prayer, though, is rewarded by God. Verse 6 says, But when you pray, go in the room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. True rewards of prayer are only found in that private place with God. The secret to prayer is secret prayer. Jesus says that the Father is in the secret place. The Bible says that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at all times. So the secret place could be anywhere. It's where you spend time with him alone. It could be on a walk in the woods. It could be you know, in your bedroom. It could be in your kitchen at the table where it's just you and him outside on a lawn chair. It could be anywhere where you get along with God with your thoughts and you recognize you're in his presence. That's the secret place. That's understanding who God is. Bill Bright said if he had to go back in his career and his life and really stress something, he would have stressed the character of God. Because when you understand the character of God, it changes about how you think of God when you know he's always there. Second, Jesus says the Father who sees in private will reward you. Moreover, secret prayer is its own reward in essence, right? Spending time with God gives you this peace and this strength, and this understanding, because you're connected to the creator of the universe. To me, I think as we look at this, it doesn't mean that the Bible says there should be no public prayer. There should be. But the percentage of public prayer should be looked at like an iceberg, right? So if you look at the next slide here, the iceberg kind of shows you. When you look at an iceberg, 10% of it is above the waterline, and about 90% is below the waterline. And that's how prayer should be. Public, about 10% of what you do. Most of it should be private prayer. The pro- Unfortunately, the prayer life of the average Christian today is more like the Titanic than it is an iceberg. We're proud vessels on the surface, but underneath the respectable Christianity, the bulkheads have been broken. They're filling up with water. The pumps are failing, and we're in danger of sinking in the sea of spiritual neglect because we're just not asking, going to God in prayer and communion. Then he goes on to say, do not pray like the Gentiles, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Isn't it interesting that Gentiles, hypocrites, knew there was a God, but they just weren't, they were using God for their own self-satisfaction. In this case, 
Gentiles are following false gods, not even gods, and they're actually seeking. 115 of Psalms says this, they have mouths referring to the gods that they pray to, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. The gods or the Gentiles were dead. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. God is basically saying that, look, you can pray to the living God incorrectly, but many of you incorrectly pray to gods that don't exist. I think it happens in our culture. It happens in what we look to, the government, people, instead of looking to God for all our needs and sustenance. See, when you look at it, how do you kind of know? I think that people who don't know God somewhat pray desperately. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Jesus is not condemning here repetitive or repeated prayer. He's not. He's condemning vain repetition that heaps up words thinking that the right words and the right amounts of words will get their prayer to be heard. I mean, think about this. If you were to recite the Lord's Prayer, there's nothing wrong with that if your heart is seeking after God, but if you're doing it just to do it and it's just a repetitive in nature, it doesn't mean anything. It would be akin to me going home and reciting to my wife our wedding vows, my wedding vows to her all the time, even though they were really good. They would get boring after a while, wouldn't it? She'd want to have some other conversation. And what he's saying is, I want what you say to me and what you bring to me to come from your heart. Likewise, Jesus is not condemning long prayers. There's a place for long prayers. The Bible has many long prayers. John 17, Jesus has a very long prayer. That's not what he's talking about. He's he's condemning the idea that your prayers have to be long or eloquent or structured in a certain way for God to hear them. I want you to mark this down. Ritualistic prayers don't impress God. Eloquent prayers don't impress God. Long prayers don't impress God. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, and what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore... Let your words be few. In other words, let your words be that which your heart yearns to say to God. Mark it down. Prayer is not overcoming the reluctance of God. It's laying hold of the willingness of God to work on your behalf. The Bible says that God starts a work in us. He's going to complete it. God knows that. We should know that. And we should ask for God to work in us and complete his work in us. It's aligning our will with his will. That's the ultimate of prayer, alignment. So God and I are on one page thinking the same things. It's interesting that people who know God, they pray differently. They pray confidently. It says here, do not be like the hypocrites whose motivations of prayer were wrong. Do like the Gentiles whose manner of prayer is wrong either. But here's how you need to seek God. Pastor Ben's going to talk to us a lot about that next week. But see, the major issue in prayer is whether or not you're really a child of God, really what it comes down to it. Are you born again, the Bible says. 
John 1 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. In other words, that day, on the side of that mountain when He was preaching, many of those people who thought they were going to heaven didn't receive Him, didn't acknowledge who He was, but were content in what they thought they knew instead of knowing the one who had all knowledge. But, all to, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, if you're not right with God, and in right standing with God, your prayers really don't go anywhere. And Jesus takes the time before he gives instructions on how to pray to basically say how not to pray because he knows in our hearts we're all going to go the wrong way. We're all going to be selfish in terms of what we go to him in prayer for. We're all going to think of us first instead of him first. And ultimately, prayer is really the act of worship. It's really the act of seeking God. We pray because he commands us to pray. We pray because there are, there are needs in our lives that are so great that without him, we don't even know how they'll ever be realized. We pray because God is our father who delights to hear from us as a father loves to hear from his kids. People who know God can pray with confidence that the father is all-knowing. So he's omnipresent and he's all-knowing. He knows before we even ask, the pastor says, of what we're going to ask and what we need. And what we want, he knows our heart. He knows our head. And so I think that when you look at verses 31 through 33 later on, it says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles? Seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. In other words, he's saying, I already know what you need and what you want. But I think I want you to know what I want from you and what I need from you and how I want to use you. And that comes with prayer. It comes by understanding our weaknesses. God knows. Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. Psalm 1.6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 2 Timothy says this, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. I love what Max Licato said. He said, our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. Isn't that true? Some of us aren't very eloquent in speech. Some of us have, have a, a difficult time putting a sentence together. And other of us just kind of don't really know what to do and how to do it. But the beauty of what Jesus is saying to everybody is just to do it. Be unique in how you do it because he made you unique. Understanding that the blessing of prayer is in the act itself. And in doing so, that's where strength comes in the spiritual realm. For we don't fight against flesh and blood, the Bible tells us. And we don't fight with the weapons of the world. I wonder how neglectful we've all been of prayer. I'm going to close with this story. Because it kind of shows the power of prayer. And it gives a little bit of an indication about what kind of country we once were. 
True story, back in 1876, grasshoppers nearly destroyed the crops in Minnesota. So in the spring of 1877, now the farmers were worried. They believed the dreadful plague would once again come upon them and they would ruin their crops and thousands would suffer. So the situation was so serious. The governor, John Pillsbury, proclaimed April 26th, a day of prayer and fasting. Can you believe that? A governor of the state said it's a day of prayer and fasting. He urged every man and woman and child to ask God to prevent the terrible scourge. On that April day, all the schools, shops, stores, and offices were closed. Could you imagine that? Businesses across our state closing to pray and fast. There was a reverent, quiet hush over the whole state. The next day dawned bright and clear. The temperature soared to what what ordinarily would be midsummer temperatures, which was unusual for April. Minnesotans were devastated as they discovered billions of grasshopper larvae wiggling to life. For three days, the unusual heat persisted. The larvae hatched. It appeared that it wouldn't be long before they started eating and destroying the wheat crop. On the fourth day, however, the temperatures dropped. That night frost covered the entire state. The result? It killed every one of those creepy, crawling pests as surely as if poison or fire had been used. It went down in the history of Minnesota as a day that God answered the prayer of his people. God wants to answer prayer. God yearns to answer prayer because he yearns to commune with us. He has a couple simple ways of things not to do when you come to him. But the main point is he wants you to come to him. I want to try something. Jim, if you can pass it out real quick as we close here. I have a little card here, and I got little three little numbers on it. I'd like you to fill it out. Don't put your name on it, please. I just want you to put, what are your most important prayer requests right now for you as an individual? Just write them down real quick. And then what I want you to do is after you write them down, I want you to take a picture of them so that you have them. And then I'd like you to put it in the offering plate, okay? We're going to do something different through the series. Just write them out, and then when the offering plate comes around in a little bit, I'd like you to just put them in there. Your top three prayer requests. So in other words, if we all left the place and you were the only one sitting in here and you were going to talk to God, what are the three most important things that you would bring to his attention? I just want you to put those three things on a sheet of paper. Again, do not put your name on it. But when the offering plate comes by, I just want you to put that in an offering plate. But do me a favor, take a picture of it so you can remind yourself of that. And then I want you to, throughout these next four weeks, all I want you to do is every day, take a few minutes out every day and pray those three things. Anybody need a card? Whatever it may be, those three things. And I just want to see what God's going to do in the midst of us as we look to him to answer our prayer, right? Now, the key to prayer, as we talked about earlier, is that obedience and prayer go together, right? So if you're living in a way that is, you know, uh, antithetical to the word of God, sinful, and you want God to answer your prayers, there's going to be a problem there because obedience and prayer go together. We've said it many times, God spells love, O-B-E-Y. And so let's look at that. 
And look at it as a time, even if that's what you're praying about. You're praying about an issue in your life that you're struggling with. We all have struggles. When's the last time you prayed about your weaknesses? When is the last time you prayed about the result of those and the effect on other people? There's a lot of things, if you really sat down and thought about praying, what you would pray for. It's not easy. But I got to tell you, when you go to seminaries and you look at the curriculum, I have not found one class on prayer. It's a discipline of the Christian life. And Jesus brings it to light here in a way of saying, hey, look, for us to commune, for us to have, for you to have my power at work in you, it really relies on my relationship to you. It starts there. And so we taught all the kids this whole week about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it means that we recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that his sacrifice on that cross was the atonement for all sin. And so that atonement washes me clean, even though I'm a sinner, a broken person. Jesus' sacrifice washes my sin. It takes my sins and makes them as far as the east as the west, makes them white as snow, the Bible says. And that's important because when I stand before God, the Bible says there's an accuser, and the accuser comes up and said, Mike Shepherd did this and this and this, and he'll be talking for a long time. And the beautiful thing about it is Jesus walks in and says, yep, he did, but I paid the price for those sins. And because I paid the price for those sins, he is mine. Welcome to my kingdom. It's not about what I do or who I am and what I have done or what I haven't done. It's all about what Jesus did on the cross. It's all it takes. When you know that, that supersedes religion, that supersedes everything because Jesus is, is the answer at all times. And so if you, if you haven't really thought about that, you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need my sin covered because the Bible says that God can have no part of sin. In other words, my sin stands between me and God. And unless there's some covering for that sin, it prevents me from having a relationship with God no matter how many times I go to church no matter how many good things I do, no matter how much money I give, whatever it may be, it separates me from God. But Jesus came in and through his death and atonement on the cross covers my sin. He did the work. He is the one who saves and it's all about him. And so if you've never really thought about that or understood that, I challenge you today as we pray now to just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a covering for my sin. Help me to understand that. Come into my heart and lead me through your word each and every day. And you know what? He will. That's the beauty of God. And that's the power of prayer. It can change your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for how you ask us to pray. How you ask us to come to you and commune with you. And how, Lord, we look to you for helping us learn how to do that more effectively over the next few weeks. I know sometimes, Lord, it's really difficult for us to pray. We get alone. We have the best intentions. Sometimes we fall asleep. Sometimes the phone rings. Sometimes our kids, Lord, need us. But, Lord, we know you want and desire that intimate fellowship with us as well. Oh, Lord, help us not to be neglectful people. 
Help us to realize the power that comes with getting before you and talking to you as someone would a friend. And Lord, we'd ask that you would encourage us and inspire us and work in us now so, Lord, that we would do just that. For the glory of your name, I pray. Amen.